Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. So welcome back to A Long Time in Finance. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has changed the financial landscape of the world. For decades after the Cold War, barriers fell and finance seeped across borders almost without limit. True, there were the odd restrictions placed on some countries such as Iran and Venezuela, but the assumption was that a really big economy, one wired into the international system, would never be touched. The sanctions placed on Russia have exploded that calculus, so much so that this week Russia almost went into default on some foreign currency bonds. The position on those bonds remains a bit unclear, but it looks as if payment has been made. What's clear, though, is that the financial world is now changing. And it's not just Russia. China is also walling itself off. And the model of free capital flows is under threat. We're joined today, I'm delighted to say, by Edward Chancellor, a financial historian of debt and default. His book, Devil Take the Hindmost, is required reading on the subject. He's also working on a book on the history of interest rates, which is out later this year. So welcome, Eddie. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. No, great pleasure. We're going to start a little bit on the Russian situation, the Russian default. And it's a sort of slightly weird situation because Russia seems to be absolutely trying to push money at the West and its creditors and claiming that it's unable to pay because it's been sanctioned. But normally, of course, financial defaults are nothing like this. They're basically come about because the creditors are quite keen to be paid, but the borrower just refuses. Is that not the point of difference here? I think so, Jonathan. You know, they say that the four most expensive words in the English language are, this time is different. <laughs> I thought they were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, well, that's but it's four, probably more that's not. That's not four <laughs> words, Neil. Do carry on, Eddie. <laughs> this time is different. That was the sort of comment ascribed to Sir John Templeton. The thesis being that, that in the financial markets that started in Mesopotamia... <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) This could be a long We've seen everything. Yet, as far as I know, we've never seen a default or a near default coming about because the creditors are refusing to accept (laughs) the money of the debtor. Normally, it's because the debtor has run out of money or the debtor voluntarily defaults. Having said that, as, as you already mentioned, Russia isn't in a state of default currently, and and it looks as if the payments that it was trying to make on this bond earlier this week have gone through. So, but still, go back. The essential point is that Russia didn't seek to default; that that was imposed on it through again something that seems to me quite novel, which is that the capital controls, which are normally imposed to keep money in a country, the capital controls have been imposed on Russia to prevent Russia taking money out of the country. So again, I think that's novel. And then another area of novelty is this freezing of the central bank reserves. So Russia's central bank reserves are something in the range of north of $600 billion. Mm. 
And the foreign hard currency debt is something in the range of $38 billion. So it's a little more than 5% of the size of FX reserves. So Easy to pay back. Yeah. <laughs> can't use those reserves. So, so the freezing of, of the reserves is, again, it's not quite unprecedented because apparently the Americans did that with the Afghan reserves when the Taliban took over last year. So they're obviously developing a taste for it. But it didn't even happen in, in the Second World War with Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. They were still able to... Yes, yeah, so I, <laughs> this is not my particular field of speciality, but there is a book on the Bank for International Settlements called, I think, Hitler's Secret Banker, which makes the point that the Reichsbank was able during the Second World War to send gold to Switzerland via the Bank of International Settlements, which was then transacted with the Bank of England. So you could say that actually the Bank of England was providing the hard currency for Germany to supply itself with war materials during the Second World War. So again, this freezing up of, of central bank relations looks pretty novel to me. I don't really want to go back quite that far. Can you just remind me and the readers, what happened in the 1998 (laughs) Russian default, where really clearly was a default rather than just a sort of threat of one? Well, the Russian default in 98, that occurred at a time, circumstances somewhat different to today, in that the Russian state was very shaky, sort of still hadn't recovered from the collapse of the Soviet Union. You had the oil price down a lot. And then you had the crisis at, at long-term capital management of the hedge fund leading to sort of financial tremors. And, and that, that was the moment that the Russians defaulted. Although, again, what's quite interesting about that default is that on conventional debt metrics, the amount of Russia's foreign debt outstanding was relatively low. So it wasn't anticipated from a sort of financial perspective. I mean, the situation today is that Russia was like in a, in a in a more robust position because it not only had very little foreign currency debt outstanding but it had large reserves and the oil price had rebounded from its low in 2020 and Russia was getting was getting still is actually getting quite a lot of money in from its energy sales so it's very different today than it was in 98 so why has the credit rating agency downgraded russian debt russian sovereign debt to double C, which is a pretty low rating. The problem is that Russia is, is, is sanctioned and therefore unable to get its money through the plumbing of the global financial system. A lot of this, I was speaking to a, an emerging market investor yesterday, asking him about it. He says a lot of it isn't really to do with uh, strict legal prohibitions, but sort of cautions by American banks whose bankers think that they might be sanctioned and so on and so forth. When JP Morgan and Citibank accepted the Russian dividend payment, they weren't forbidden from doing so. They were just being reluctant to do so. Because I think there's a concession, isn't there, that uh, they're allowed to accept payments up until the end of May and rather implies that after that they won't be allowed to. Is that going to be a problem or is that so far ahead in a fast-moving world that nobody has a clue yes i'd say nobody has a clue Um, (laughs) (laughs) but can i can i just pull it back to also broaden the lens slightly here to look at i mean you're a historian of the sovereign debt world you've looked at 
defaults, not quite going back to Babylon, I think, but uh, <laughs> maybe you're going to rectify that in your next book. And is there a parallel? What is, you know, I'm interested in what is sort of happening to the international financial, the sort of capital markets, and whether this is a real change or whether this is something which could be simply a temporary disruption put back together after the war hopefully comes to an end soon. But but what's your sense? Is there a parallel? You said a lot of this was novel, but is there a parallel to this sort of breakup that seems to be happening at the moment of the world yeah. into different blocks? Yeah, I think there are, there are some parallels. The first one, I would say, is, is really the run-up to the First World War. What's interesting about that, in the run-up to the First World War, Russia was a very large foreign debtor. It was particularly beloved by French yeah. investors after a sort of Franco-Russian entente of 1893, going up to the First World War, Russia owned, I think, around £850 million of foreign debt and accounted for, I think, about 12% of foreign bonds on the London Stock Exchange. Mm. And what's interesting, I think that, that, that is a parallel to recent events, is that although the historians will tell you that there was a long run-up to the war and they'll point to, you know, the conflicts between Britain and Germany and the arms race and, and problems in the Balkans. The markets just didn't see this at all. In the run-up to the closing of the financial markets at the end of July 1914, there was only something like sort of 35 basis points rise in gilt yields. Russian bond yields hardly moved at all in that period. Then the markets closed. When the war started, there was a war shock. started in early August. London Stock Exchange remained closed from late July to the end of the year when markets opened again. At that stage, actually, Russian bonds were only down 9% from their pre-run-up to war pricing. Now, you go forward two years, you have the Russian Revolution and a deliberate intentional default by the Bolsheviks on their foreign debts, about £800 million. And that default continued through till the 1990s. So it was the longest default in history. So I think that what, what's interesting there, you know, particularly from the perspective of both emerging a Russian debt investors and Russian equity investors, and, and I know people who, who belong to both those categories, yeah. is that they were surprised. I'm not saying everyone was surprised, but the markets were pretty much surprised. So the spread, Russian bonds were yielding sort of 100 basis points above treasuries last year, and the spread went up to 250 basis points right. just before the Ukraine invasion. So there's a similar type of sort of complacency before the event. Why was that? I think the reason is this, is that people in financial markets are used to dealing with financial data, you know, and, and therefore they like to see risk in terms of things that can be sort of manipulated in, in a spreadsheet. Whereas a, an event risk or, or war is something that is more difficult to discern more infrequent. And when you have a highly 
integrated global financial system as we do, the repercussions are almost too horrible to think about. Yeah. So you don't uh, think about them? No. <laughs> uh, it, it, Steve Fisher, who was in charge of Citibank's Moscow office until a year or two ago, has described what has happened in the last few weeks as a cataclysmic paradigm shift. 25 years of post-Soviet economic progress has been lost in three weeks. Do you agree with that? I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm saying I mean, come it, off I, the fence. I'm not really going to talk about this from a sort of specific Russian perspective. Yes, you know, they've closed down McDonald's in Moscow. So, yes, that I'm not seem... sure that's quite what he had in mind, actually. <laughs> he probably had something like that in mind. I'm thinking from the perspective of the global international monetary and financial system. And I think that the question that we have to think about, and again, one can look for historical parallels, is this suddenly shutting Russia out of the global financial system, does that augur some change in the future? I would say yes. Russia's not, a, I mean, it's an important economy, it's an important resource economy, but it's not a vast economy. Why do you think it's a big change? As you mentioned earlier, you know, we've had these vast capital flows. And historically, one sees a sort of ebb and flow of these capital flows rising and, and sinking. The periods when they've been particularly strong, historically, have tend to be followed by periods of capital flow reversals, of rising sovereign defaults, and of the imposition of capital controls, and at times by changing in the structure of the international monetary system. For me, this seems to be the most important thing that investors need to get their heads around and to see whether this is where what might be happening. Now, I don't think this shift towards deglobalization or the breakup of what we call the dollar standard. This is not a bolt out of the blue. It may be that Putin's invasion of Ukraine was unexpected. But what I think we've been seeing is a sort of long-term unraveling of globalization and of financial globalization. And the taking out of Russia almost overnight with these very extreme measures, such as closing down the central bank's FX reserves, is a, a marked step in that direction. The chief economist of the Bank for International Settlements, Claudio Borio, whom I'm a, a big fan, has long talked of what he calls an epoch-defining seismic shift. What he means by that is something that breaks the dollar standard, the system in which the, the dollar is the linchpin of the financial system and capital flows are unrestricted. Do you think that this event, these capital constraints that are placed on Russia, the invasion of the Ukraine, could be such a moment? Russia is clearly trying to trade some of its commodities with China and other countries in other currencies than the dollar because it wants to evade the constraints it's been placed under. But what do you think? Do you think it's, it's that big a moment? This sort of unwinding if one could call it that, is something that happens through a series of steps. So since the financial crisis, we've seen more protectionism, more trade wars, uh, tariffs, no growth in it, overall international trade. And in a way, you know, the, the rise of Trump and perhaps to some extent Brexit were sort of 
some you know aspects of, of this sort of unraveling. You've seen occasional capital controls, you know, not in sort of places that normally imposed like in Latin America, but you saw them in Europe during the sort of European sovereign debt crisis. I think that, as I say, this taking out of Russia when it's sitting on more than six hundred billion dollars of FX reserves. I'm not being original here, but I mean it must call the long-term question of the so-called dollar standard into account. You've got you know China sitting on I don't know what they are, sort of somewhere more than three trillion dollars of FX reserves, and you have the Chinese developing their digital yuan as a sort of central bank digital currency that is meant intended, as far as I can see, to create a settlement system parallel to the financial settlement system under the American sway. And you can see that a country like Russia will now be pushed more closely into the Chinese orbit. And if the dollar standard cracks, one would see sort of China and Russia as part of one system and the US as part of another. So even if Russia doesn't default on these bonds immediately, your vision that you're painting for us is a world in which capital flows reverse themselves, you have more sovereign defaults, and basically things get a lot more anxious and tight than they have been. But not a very pretty picture, really. The days of easy money are over. It's the epoch-defining seismic rupture. And I mean, again, the best parallel for that is the late 20s, early 30s, where huge capital flows into Central Europe and Latin America from the United States reversed when the Fed starts hiking rates aggressively in 1928. It's after that that you get a banking crisis in Central Europe, the collapse of Credit Anstalt, and everyone coming off the gold standard, or everyone apart from the United States and France, and the system unraveling. And then what's quite interesting is you see not just the defaults, but you see defaults in you know, Germany, defaults in 31, uh, the Japanese, Japanese-imposed capital controls, and so forth. So you get this, and then you get these, the system becomes um, quite complex. You have standstill agreements say so that bondholders, if they sell their bonds abroad, they can't get their money out of the country and so forth. They have to take a reduction. So I'm not saying that one's going down that route, but you can see how things unravel. And I think that the position that Russia is in today, although it's engendered by an act of war, its position is part of the unravelling of, of the global capital flows and the, of the monetary system that we've all got used to over the last 40 years. Yeah, well, I find that as fascinating, very, very troubling. I'm going to leave the last word to Neil, who's been <laughs> thirsting to <laughs> ask a difficult question. I don't think that uh, we are going to see the end of dollar hegemony and I think it's more likely to be reinforced by what has happened. And I think that China is going to find further progress in terms of moving up the uh, world's league table of economies a lot harder in future than it's been in the past. And I think that uh, the, the outside bet I would make is that actually Europe, including the United Kingdom, does a lot better over the next few years relatively than it has in the past. This is a real rarity. You've actually, he's actually more optimistic than you are, Eddie. Normally he's <laughs> a total 
Gloomster, I think is the word. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> Get away. <laughs> Time will tell, as they say. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week.